Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We will be looking at uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 down to 23. We we are in Luke chapter 7, um, picking up in verse 18. If you just sort of cast your eye back over what's come beforehand, you will see uh, that Jesus has been in the midst of his preaching and healing ministry going throughout the synagogues of Judea. Uh, In chapter 6, you have what is called the Sermon on the Plain, which may well be the very same event as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Um, And now we come after the raising of the widow's son and the passage just before our own to verse 18. Let me read for us and then we will pray. This is God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you this evening trembling at your word. We need your help by your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and to open our hearts that your word would go forth and not return to you empty, but that it would accomplish that for which you purpose it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you will know the name Francis Schaeffer, the famous Christian apologist and theologian, perhaps best known for founding, along with his wife Edith, the Labrie Initiative in Switzerland. Here they had this chalet up in the Swiss Alps, where they would invite travelers to come in and to get away from life and to take time out and ask the big questions of life. And over the years, many, many people would come to take refuge in their home and they would bring their questions, their baggage, their doubts, and they could testify to the Schaefer's warmth, their hospitality, and their wisdom in defending and upholding the Christian faith. But you know, it it wasn't that long ago that Francis Schaeffer himself had actually harbored doubts. Just a few years earlier, in 1951, he had started to harbor a few nagging concerns about the training he had received. Uh, And in the spring of that year, for over two months, Francis Schaeffer found himself walking back and forth in the hayloft of his Swiss chalet 
in his own words, to rethink the whole matter of Christianity. The man to whom so many others would come to for answers to their question, this man himself was questioning the whole sum of Christianity. And it would seem in our text that this is the predicament of John the Baptist. Here we have John, whom we meet at the start of Luke's gospel as a baby in his mother's womb, already filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember leaping for joy when he meets Mary with Jesus in her womb. John, the great intertestamental prophet who we meet in chapter 3, preparing the way in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, warning the crowds to bear the fruit of repentance. John, who had already extolled the mightiness of Christ in John chapter 3, verse 16, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This very John has sent his disciples to ask this question, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? It's a very strange scene that we are invited to this evening. A strange but fascinating scene because here we see Jesus confronted with something that is oh so relatable, isn't it? That is, if you are one of those rare people who has ever had doubts. You know, one of those people like the rest of us whose faith is ever shaken a little bit. Here we see Jesus confronted with something we've all faced, and we are going to see how, just how he responds to this. But first we must get to the bottom of John's query here. What is the nature of John's doubt? This will be our first heading. What is the nature of the doubt? Now, as we consider this, we first have to ask, who is really behind the question? You see there in verse 18 that it, it is the disciples of John that report all these things to him. And by all these things, I take it we can mean at the very least the miracle of raising the widow's son in the passage just before our own. But probably the whole sum of Jesus' ministry up to this point, the, the teaching, the, the healing, the exorcisms, They've heard all of this, and then John, being in Herod's prison, he calls two of his disciples to himself, and he arms them with this question to send to Jesus. Now, there is a view among this, some commentators, no less than John Calvin, that this question is not really for John's benefit. After all, they say, John, of course, knew about the Christ. And so, according to them, John really is placing this question in the mouth of his disciples for their own good. To send them to Jesus. You think about it, it's quite a John the Baptist thing to do really, isn't it? He must increase, I must decrease. Sending his disciples away to John. I think there's something to be said for this view, in fact. The, the question itself is a loaded one. 
It's not just, who are you, but are you the coming one? In other words, it's presupposing the Messiah, and it's sort of teeing Jesus up to hit them home with a, a slam dunk or a home run of an answer. So there's something to the answer, perhaps, but there's just one problem. It's not what the Bible says here. Now, far be it from me to disagree with John Calvin, but I will throw my lot in with the other side on this one. Because it seems to me that John really is asking this for his own sake. That makes sense of, in verse 20, the disciples repeating the fact, John has sent us to ask this question. It makes sense of verse 22, when Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Uh, Now, by the way, if you read the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 11, I think that also makes it clear that John himself really has this concern. So there is this concern about where the question is really coming from. Is it coming from John? Is it coming from his disciples? I think it's coming from John, but that's not to rule out that it could also be the sentiment of his disciples. Now, in any case, what is the occasion for the question? You know, if a friend comes to you, and says that they are struggling spiritually. I would imagine that you are probably going to ask them a few questions. You're going to say, well, what's happening in your life at the moment? Is there something I don't know about? Some baggage, some circumstance, some problem that you're dealing with? You're trying to get down underneath the surface to what really is going on. And so what is the occasion for the question. Now here we we have to tread lightly because we can only speculate within the bounds of what we're told. But I offer two suggestions. The first is this, that there was some confusion occasioned by the radically different nature of the lives of John and his disciples and the lives of Jesus and his disciples. It had been pointed out earlier in chapter 5 that John's disciples fasted and lived an austere life like their master, but Jesus' disciples ate and drank. And so John and his disciples are looking at this and thinking, what on earth is going on with Jesus and his ministry? Well, that's one suggestion. The second suggestion is that this is all centered on John's predicament. You see, John is there locked away in prison. And now Jesus had come. So perhaps he was expecting Jesus to sort of burst open the gates of the prison and spring him free. On this view, John perhaps is getting caught up in the prevailing notion of many Jews at the time, that when the Messiah would come, he would throw off the Roman oppression and bring immediate justice and vindication to his people. Now, all of that being said, those are some suggestions for the occasion of of the doubt. All of that being said, what can we say about the nature of the doubt? 
I think we can say this with certainty. That the doubt here is not the doubt of the scoffer. That is the doubt that refuses to believe at the outset as a matter of principle. This is not akin to, for instance, the philosopher David Hume, enlightenment philosopher who rejected miracles out of hand basically by defining miracles as something that can't happen in the first place. It's not akin to anyone who'd make a similar sort of move, who would say, well, I can't possibly believe in uh, miracles and Jesus and the supernatural things that happened so long ago because it's ridiculous to believe in far-fetched stories. No, John and his disciples are not scoffers. Instead, I think theirs is a doubt of disillusionment. A doubt of disillusionment. Now, what is disillusionment? It's something I think we've all experienced before. Uh, in all sorts of spheres of life, I understand that that's an apt way to describe much of the public in the 70s in the wake of the Watergate scandal. You know, am I, am I right? I think this is what lots of Americans experienced. Perhaps at a personal level, you have known someone or a situation where it suddenly took a different dive and you experienced disillusionment. So what is disillusionment? Well, it's expecting things to be one way. Having all your hopes set in something and then for it to take a drastically different turn and for your, your bubble to be burst, your expectations to be shattered. And here, John and his disciples are manifesting prime disillusionment. The Jesus whom John had spent all those years in the wilderness preparing the way for, preaching about, well, now Jesus has shown up and he doesn't seem to be fitting the bill of what John had expected. So that's the nature of the doubt. Now we come secondly to Jesus' initial response. Jesus' initial response. Now before we get to that, in verse 21, you will see Luke inserts his own narrator's comment. He says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And then in verse 22, what is curious about Jesus' response here? Verse 22, he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. What is curious about his response? Well, it's not exactly a direct answer to his question, is it? You know, sometimes we want a direct answer. So we sit someone down and we say, we pose them our question, we say yes or no, true or false. And Jesus is not playing along. So why is he not giving us a direct answer and what does this alert us to? Now in the first place, I think Jesus and Luke are drawing our attention to the substance and fruit of Jesus' ministry. They're, they're directing our gaze onto the things that Jesus 
has done. But in the second place, we do well to recognize the evocative sense of Jesus' words there in verse 22. The evocative sense. Uh, You will probably remember Martin Luther King's famous mountaintop speech. How it was loaded with that biblical and religious imagery. He's allowed me to go down up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. Do you remember? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. What is Martin Luther King doing? Well, he's invoking the significance of Moses to an American people who at that time were well familiar with that kind of language in order to open their eyes to see the prophetic significance of what he has to say. Well, that's Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. But here we find our Lord alluding to and invoking Scripture infallibly to illumine his ministry. Now, what is the specific reference? It's a book that we will already have heard quoted throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus quotes from its 61st chapter in the synagogue when he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In fact, John himself had quoted from its 40th chapter. What is the book? It's the book of Isaiah. And here, if I can put it this way, or of course, as you guys say, Isaiah. I'll I'll translate for you. And here, if I could put it this way, Jesus is using an Isaiah idiom that he knew John the Baptist was well familiar with to convey something to him. It's a little bit like, you know, two well-acquainted friends trading back and forth memes on a, a, a television show that they know. You know, memes or quotes, something like that. They're both in the know, and they can just say a little comment, and the other one knows exactly what they mean by it. That's a little bit what's going on here. Now, what, what in particular from Isaiah? Well, chapters 35 and 61. I invite you to look down at verse 22. And I'll read chapters 35 to 61, just snippets, and see if you can hear the echoes of Isaiah there in Jesus' response in verse 22. So Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And now Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So do you hear the echoes of Isaiah in Jesus' response? And if you don't, well, at least the commentators do. So hopefully we do. And this is the key for why Jesus would respond in such a seemingly undirect manner. Because the question is not so much, does Jesus do all these things. There's no doubt about it. John has heard the reports. It's been spreading throughout the land. Oh yes, Jesus does all these things. No, the question really is, are these the kinds of things that the Messiah does? Or to put it another way, 
when the Messiah has come, should his ministry look like what Jesus' ministry looks like? Now, of course, we stand with the benefit of hindsight. But remember, John is a man locked away in Herod's prison. And bear in mind that John, if you cast your mind to, back to John, uh, Luke chapter 3, if you know it there, John knew that the Messiah was supposed to stand with winnowing fork in hand to separate the wheat and the chaff. And so perhaps John is so focused on the judgment of Christ that he doesn't know what to do with this comparatively soft earthly ministry that he's seeing in front of him. And it's probably fair to say as well, John being the intertestamental prophet, just like the prophets of old, probably doesn't fully grasp the the revelation in all its weight and glory that is flowing through him. And so it seems that Jesus' response here is something of a correction. John, do you really believe the Isaiah that you preached? Do you really believe that God is whom he said, that, that God has said about the coming one in his word? And so, of course, there is a very simple lesson for us too, and the lesson is this, that God's Christ, God's Messiah, is not the Christ of your imagination. He is not the Christ of your fanciful desires, but he is the Christ as he is revealed plainly in the word of God. John Calvin, I'll quote Calvin just to get back in his good books. Uh, John Calvin writes that the true knowledge of Christ consists in receiving him as he is offered by the Father, namely as he is clothed in his gospel. What a beautiful way to put it. Namely, as he is clothed in his gospel. He puts, writes in the same place that there is an everlasting relationship between faith and the word of God, so that it is no more possible to divide the two than you could divide rays of light from the sun from which they shine. You see what he's saying? You cannot have a Christ of your own imagination apart from the Christ as he is revealed in God's word. You see, so often our disillusionment comes because we have done just that. We have settled upon an idea of what Christ should be like. We have settled upon an idea of how God should behave with or or deal with us in our circumstances. And so we begin to distort certain truths out of disproportion. We think, well, if God were really loving, then he'd let me live however I want to. If God were really just, he wouldn't have let this tragic situation happen. And yet so often we have lost sight of some key aspect of who Christ is revealed in his word. And here our Lord, by taking John back to Isaiah, he teaches us to lean again on what God has said about his Christ in his word. 
Now, lastly, we come to the second part of Jesus' response. So we've seen John's doubt of disillusionment. Secondly, the response of Jesus in driving us back to his word. And now thirdly, the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel. There is a gentle rebuke here and even a warning for anyone who has the ears to hear it. It comes in verse 33. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know, most of us don't like to be offended. I've yet to meet someone who really likes to be insulted, unless it's sarcastically, in which case, because I come from the land of sarcasm, quite a lot of people. Um, And yet here, Jesus cautions us about taking offense at him, which raises the question, what sort of offense could John, could we be liable to take? You will notice here that the offense is is not so much a personal attack. It's not like the school ground bully uh, just uh, railing insults at you. No, the offense here, it's more the sense of taking umbrage, of finding something so repugnant and repulsive, something that you just cannot accept. The word skandalizo in the Greek It's the same word used for stumbling block and rock of offense in 1 Peter chapter 2. The same word as Paul uses to describe Christ crucified as a stumbling block to the Jews in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see, Jesus Christ, of course, is the one with whom we have to do. What you make of Christ settles your eternal destiny. There is no neutral ground. And so for some of us, Lord willing, all of us in this room, he is the cornerstone upon which we build our lives. And we confess here and now joyfully, Christ is Lord. And yet for most of the world, he is the stumbling stone upon which they will trip over. Yes, Christ as he really is has the potential to be the stumbling block to any would-be believer. And so Jesus is offering a warning shot here. He's saying, check your doubt. Check your disillusion, your unbelief, and do not take offense at him. Well, how might this be a danger for John? You might be wondering. How might he be tempted to be offended by Christ. Let me offer two suggestions in the context of the passage. The first we've touched on. It's simply the lack of judgment that has characterized Jesus' ministry so far. Again, John is rotting away in prison, having denounced the sin of Herod, an innocent man bound up. And Jesus has come along and he doesn't seem to have delivered the the vindication that he perhaps was expecting. You know, this is a little bit backwards to us, arguably. Aren't we so often offended by the message of judgment? And here, John actually is offended by the lack of judgment. That's the first suggestion. The second potential for offense for anyone in Jesus' day has to do with whom the gospel is designed for. Consider again, 
the works of Jesus in verse 22. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Who is the gospel designed for? The poor and afflicted. The weak and the outcast, the lowly in society. This is for whom Christ has been set apart. Now as a result, the church is filled with people who are not self-sufficient. Those who don't have very much standing in the world. Christians are rarely high up the social ladder. Uh, Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. How does the world view us? We are lightly esteemed. We are nobodies in the eyes of the world. And the gospel is a gospel for nobodies. You see the potential for anyone in Jesus' day of the offense. So, to sum up what we've seen here, we've seen the doubt of disillusionment. We've seen, secondly, the Christ who is known through his word. And then thirdly, the offense of the gospel. Now, where does this all leave us today? While John was there, during Christ's first coming before the cross, we stand here in anticipation of Christ's second coming. But do we not see a pervasive disillusionment in our own day? You don't need me to tell you that, surely. I'm reminded of that famous photograph, perhaps you've seen it, from the 1950s of the New York skyline at night on Easter Sunday, And all the skyscrapers are lit up with blazing crosses in celebration of the Lord's resurrection. About 70 years ago. We do not live in the same America today. Today you see all kinds of slogans and banners if you were to go drive around Savannah. And yet probably the most offensive thing to our culture that you could see out there is a cross, isn't it? And so it's easy in our day to be disillusioned. How on earth did we get to this place? Even in the church, there are many who are turning away from the gospel and thinking that the church stands more to gain from the culture than the culture stands to gain from the church. I saw an article recently of an Anglican priest who said that the church was sleepwalking into irrelevance and his solution was, that we should be engaging more with other religions, we should be asking the big questions of the day like climate change, we should be diversifying the clergy, in short, anything but the gospel. And what is he doing? He's pandering to the culture. I wonder, do you feel the disenchantment, the disillusionment in our own day? 
perhaps even you yourself, you know, you wonder, where is Jesus in the midst of all of this? Is the gospel really the answer to all our questions? Some of you maybe in this room even have some personal thing going on, some hardship, difficulty that is making you wonder, making you tempted to doubt the goodness and the substance of the gospel. So what does Jesus teach us here? He teaches us to look upon him as he is revealed to us in his word. Not the Jesus of your imagination. Not the Jesus that our culture would tell you he is. No, look to the Christ clothed in his gospel. He does not pander to your every desire or whim. He does not promise you happiness in this life. But this is the Christ who went to the cross for sinners such as you and I to satisfy the demands of a holy and righteous God and to reconcile us with the Father. And this Christ says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let us pray together. Our Father, in the midst of uncertainties and the changing whims of our culture and hardships in our own lives, we pray that we would never be offended by the Lord Jesus Christ you have given to us. Fix our eyes, we pray, on the Christ clothed in his gospel, that we would hold fast without wavering to the confession of our faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.